Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. As always, I'm really thankful that we get to open up God's Word together, so please meet me in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Easter is here. Today we begin consideration of what's known as Passion Week, uh, the days leading up from Jesus entering the city all the way to his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. But isn't it true, we're, we're coming to this holiday, this commemoration of the central movement of our faith with a completely different posture. The, the world has changed around us. There are people who are sick and dying. To be sure, this has always happened every Easter season, and yet we are acutely aware of it this year. There, there are healthcare workers on the front lines uh, giving generously, not only of their, their time and their effort, but by even risking their own lives. Civil leaders staying up late, making challenging decisions all the time. People of innumerable amounts and uh, diversity of vulnerabilities and financial hardships. So, in many respects, we're, we're trying to carry all of this into the Easter season and I, I think that God's word is really going to help us today know how to do that. Because I don't know about you, but I'm sort of lost. At how do we do that? Easter, we're supposed to put on these glad faces and happy um, dispositions, if you will. And yet, there's something about that that feels incredibly trite this year. And so, uh, I am looking forward to gathering. We'll have two separate Zoom gatherings, uh, Good Friday, 6 p.m., Easter uh, at 10 a.m., two separate gatherings for all of Church in the Square family. Invite your friends, invite family members to join us. Uh, all of that information will be on our website, churchinthesquare.com slash Easter. Uh, and so, that will be different from how we have been gathering regularly in our groups. And now, we're going to gather as a whole in these two separate um, like I said, Zoom gathering. So, we're looking forward to that, but there is sort of, uh, not sort of, but truly a, a different kind of posture that we are bringing um, into this season. And I, and I would just say, let's trust the Lord in that. Let's trust the Lord in bringing that and surrendering to that and being honest about that. And I think His Word will help us today and in the coming days uh, to do that rightly in spirit and in truth. Um, as a reminder, if you have need, we'd love to know. You're not, you're not meant to carry that by yourself, whether it's paying for rent or groceries. Um, be, not, be not ashamed. We all have weakness. We all have need. We all have problems. We all have challenges that we face together, and we're supposed to do that together. And so, please let us know. Let your group leaders know or fill out our COVID-19 assistance request form on our website. You can find uh, that there. And if you're able to give... Um, toward the different efforts that we are, are trying to live out the gospel in this unique situation, please hop on our website to our Give page, and you can mark your giving a COVID-19 benevolence. You can uh, select that so that those gifts will go directly to the different kinds of support that we're able to do as a church family during this season. Um, we're coming to Luke 19. And uh, before we come to God's word, we always want to ask for his help because it is his spirit that shines brightly through the scriptures, not by our effort or intelligence do we figure out the character of God, but by his grace that he reveals it. So, let's go to God and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we do just that. We just ask for your help. Help us. Help me. There are few seasons of our life that I think all of us have just found the end of ourselves. 
some of us perhaps have, have felt that in just emotions with our, our children, our family. Some of us perhaps um, long stretches of work without rest. Some on the front lines of giving care to a mysterious and tragic uh, disease, sickness, virus. Some of us just with, have lost our jobs they're searching for answers of what's next or how we will make ends meet. Oh, what a God we serve that you know that fully. You know those needs completely. And so I just pray for my sisters. I pray for my brothers. Would you meet them in the middle of that challenge? That you are a God who is a very present help in time of trouble. This is what your word says about who you are. And so we trust it. We center our lives on it. And Father, in this, I pray that you would help us to grow in dependency, grow in lament and crying out, grow in our reflex to go to your word when we find the end of ourselves. And so as we do that, as we come to your word today, would you speak to us and may we listen. We ask that in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, Jesus loved to tell stories. Many suppose he told these stories because stories are easily understood and remembered. Even modern psychology and neurology teach us that it is part of our brain's wiring, that we just crave stories and narrative. We, we can make sense of disconnected facts and experiences by intuitively connecting the dots, not always accurately, but we even frame ideas that don't make sense to us or are disconnected. We frame them within a story. We tell stories to ourselves. However, our immediate consideration about Jesus' storytelling acumen and affinity is really misleading. See, he told these stories known as parables, and parables are not just stories with some moral um, point at the end to apply to our lives. The Bible doesn't work like that either. It's not just a, a set of stories and ideas that we, we mine out some applicable moment or applicable principle and thought and then try to live as a result of that. See, this is why one seasoned preacher said of parables that parables are dreams for new preachers and nightmares for experienced ones. They're hard to figure out. Parables are always much deeper in meaning than they seem at first. That's because Jesus uses parables like these Trojan horses of messianic or kingdom ethics. In other words, Jesus weaves Christological, messianic meaning within his stories. He doesn't just offer moral principle. At first blush, we may suppose that Luke 19 and the parable of the 10 minas is a story encouraging good stewardship, stewardship of the resources God has entrusted to us. But my friends, that could not be further from the truth. This story, this parable is not about stewardship at all. I'll tell you what it is. This is a story which serves as a primer for Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. See, in a few days, he would be executed. But before he is, he tells this story. Look at verse 11 in Luke chapter 19. We'll take the parable as a whole. 
As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them, Jesus did, a, a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Remember that. This is why he's telling this story. He goes on, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you, or rather I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is not about stewardship. We, we may be tempted to belittle Jesus' parable, attempting to find within it some moral commission for us to use our resources God's way and to use what has been entrusted to us wisely, not wasting, but investing and extending his kingdom. This is a good idea, but the wrong passage. See, we'd be wrong in that presumption. Notice the context of the parable. Not only are they approaching Jerusalem and believe that the kingdom would come immediately, but the central figure is a nobleman who's leaving town. His purpose for leaving, if you notice in the text, is to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. This was common practice for monarchy. In fact, in recent history, uh, to the telling of this story, two noblemen, Herod in 40 BC and Archelaus in 4 BC, had gone to Rome in order to receive power from Caesar or authority from Caesar to rule over the section of the Roman Empire which he had entrusted to them. These specific instances would have been on the minds, fresh in fact, on the minds of Jesus' listeners. And in Jesus' story, as was the case in Archelaus, the nobleman faced significant opposition to his impending authority. Many didn't want him to rule and reign over them. But despite this opposition, he becomes king. Despite opposition, he is king. The central figure receives his kingdom and returns home. 
Upon his return, he looks at the servants, those he's entrusted this money and this business to. Two of the 10, whom he had entrusted about two and a half years wages, used those resources and increased the king's kingdom. Each was blessed and rewarded, but a third confessed fear, a fear which drove him to fail to even invest the money in his king's absence. The reason for his behavior and his fear is that he thought the king to be a severe man. But the question, which is sort of begged from the text, is, is the nobleman, is this king severe? He doesn't seem so. I mean, he entrusted his business to these 10 different people as he went away and graciously blessed and honored them for their work when he returned. The story shows us a gracious ruler. He's in charge, but he's generous. Not a severe and hard overlord, quite the opposite. See, this is why the king condemns the third servant. Notice, for his own words. He's not accused of breaking a rule of the king, but of not living in light of his own words. So the point of the story is that the third servant doesn't know the king. He may be connected to him. He may be associated with him. He may even do a lot of work for him. But hear this, my brothers and sisters, he doesn't trust him. He has a wrong view of the character and nature of his master, which leads to a behavior which is out of step with the master's expectations. Am I preaching to you yet? The servant is judged and the enemies who came against the king are committed to death. See, judgment has come, but not as a result of poor stewardship. That's not the point, but rather for lack of submission and the absence of trust. You see, the point of the story is that familiarity is not faith. Knowledge is not allegiance. Let's bring this right up into all of our kitchens. Just because you know things about Jesus doesn't mean you know him. Just because we have information about him does not mean we trust him. It's about authority and accountability through relationship. And this is precisely what the next week would hold. The final week of Jesus' life would prove an eternal measure. In his book on the Gospel of Mark, Pastor Tim Keller gives witness to two polarizing views of God. The first is a pretty archaic and somewhat religious view of God. He summarizes it this way, he, that, that he, God, is a bloodthirsty tyrant who needs to be constantly appeased by good behavior, if not outright sacrifice. This view leads atheist Richard Dawkins to consider the God of the Bible with incredible dis disdain. He, he famously, Dawkins does, has this, this thought of Christians and, and really any monotheist that they're atheist of millions of God except for one, the God of the Bible. An atheist, he claims, simply take atheism one step further and, it, and, and also disbelieve in the Christian's God. He does so in large measure because of what he observes to be the tyranny of the God of the Bible, particularly in the, of the Old Testament. He, he writes in his book, The God Delusion, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. 
jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. His fellow atheists, one, as they describe as this new atheistic thought, the late Christian Christopher Hitchens increasingly made the case that the God of the New Testament even was more evil than the God of the Old. What's of note, though, about this particular view of God is that atheists are articulating a view that many of us as Christians believe, many of us who are religious live by. We may not use that kind of language, I get it, but we certainly live as if we better fall in line or God will get us. It reveals a view that we have of God, that he is a wrathful judge who disciplines bad behavior. Therefore, obey him and don't upset him. Keller goes on to describe a modern conceptualization of God. He explains that God can be viewed as a spiritual force that we can access anytime we want, no questions asked, completely different from the first view. See, in other words, God is real, but he is one whom we come to on our terms in our way. He's not an all-powerful authoritative Lord. He is a force on par with the powers of this world, whom we go to at our behest, at our desire, at our need. This view is on full display the other night. I turned on the television and briefly watched a cable news anchor reveal his own understanding of this particular worldview. He was talking about a pastor in Florida who wrongly refused to close his doors. It's sort of this uh, bombastic way of saying that God is protecting us. And he the news anchor is, is recounting this moment, even, even plays a clip of the pastor in his defiance. And, and as the cameras dim from that clip and back onto the news anchor, you can see him shaking his head. And as his head is still shaking, here's what he says. Whether you attend that church or not, everyone listen to the sound of my voice. Hear my words. Remember this, this virus doesn't care what you believe. It does not care where you worship. It does not care if you worship at all. Doesn't care if you're a person of faith or not. You don't get immunity because of your beliefs. God and science and medicine can all coexist at the same time. Now, I don't mean to be harsh. I understand his plea. I'm sure he was heartfelt, the news anchor was, and simply wanted to convince his viewers that everyone is as susceptible as anyone else to contract this virus. However, the presumption which is revealed underneath his plea is that God is subservient to this virus. In fact, if you listen closely to his words, the virus has a personality and power, not God. See, he revealed what many of us often believe, that God is a force that coexists, not a Lord who reigns. Palm Sunday is a day which has been celebrated by the church for generations. Jesus on a donkey entering the gates of the great city of God, Jerusalem. In doing so, he paves a new way for us to see and know God. 
If you know him to be a wrathful judge who is just waiting for you to slip up so he can discipline you, Palm Sunday will unearth your false familiarities. If you know him to be a passive force with little authority over the real world, Palm Sunday will dispel those misguided considerations too. You may be familiar with with a God who is one or the other. You may be familiar and consider God with one of these particular kinds of understandings, but is your knowledge accurate? Is your understanding fueled by faith? And my friends, do you really trust him? See, Jesus rides into the city and shatters every possible understanding of God except his true nature. He is a king about to go away to receive his kingdom. But before he does, he entrusts his people with something and promises to return. See, the parable prepared us for the narrative. In the story, a nobleman goes to receive a kingdom and then returns home. In Jerusalem, Jesus will enter, or rather will eventually, uh, ascend to his father as resurrected king overall. And we'll learn one day he'll return. But we will pick up this narrative first as Jesus and his disciples approach the city. The same city that we have just studied, which was devastated in lamentations, is now restored as the great, great king approaches. Look at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where, you, uh, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. The miraculous takes place in the commonplace. It was customary for a dignitary or even a religious leader to procure some personal property for their own sake. The practice was known as Angaria. So it's not impressive that Jesus demands something and it's given to him. What's fascinating about this story is that Jesus describes it all before it happens and then it takes place just so. What Jesus predicts takes place. He doesn't say, find something for me to ride as some sort of like horoscope with vague generalities that somehow are connected to what really happens. He says, you'll find a cult. It's never been ridden. If they ask this, say this. And look at verse 32. Church, look at it. They found it just as he had told them. My brothers and sisters, when God says something will happen, we will always find it just as he told us. Are you with me? Jesus is not just exercising some cultural authority of Angaria. This is no mere earthly power or cultural privilege. He is demonstrating his authority as almighty God. He knows all things and he does as he pleases. 
His otherworldliness is further demonstrated by the simple yet vital details of this story. See, the prophet Zechariah wrote 600 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus doesn't select a colt or a donkey because he was just trying to show off that he holds the future, but also that he holds the past, that he is the promised king of old. Not only so, but the kingship of Jesus is marked by the words found in 2 Kings chapter 9. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpets and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And so in the exact way, now as King Jehu ascends to lead the people, they place these garments on the ground. This exact same thing takes place as Jesus approaches the city, approaches his throne, ascends to authority. And just like the shouts that Solomon heard pro- proclaiming that he would have long life, that as those words echoed in the streets, as he rode on King David's mule, so too Jesus fulfills this historic sign of the coming King of Israel. See, in all of this, Jesus demonstrates his incredible power and glory as the one who has been promised, demonstrating that he is the long-awaited hope of God's people. He's not coming as some hegemonic judge ready to just slay all of his enemies. He's not coming as some passive or suggestive force hoping to be let in. There is messianic intentionality and there is meekness. His royalty is unquestioned, but so is his humility. What we are given in Jesus Christ, entering in a city on what we now commemorate as Palm Sunday, is a king who is at both one and the same time fully authoritative and completely meek. Perhaps you're familiar with someone who is powerful. Perhaps that's who you know God to be. Perhaps you are familiar with someone who is humble. Perhaps this is your concept of God. But having some knowledge of God, which is either authority or meekness, power or humility, this is a familiarity with fiction. What Palm Sunday tells us is that Jesus, the Son of God, is not one or the other. Jesus is power and humility riding on a donkey into the city of God. See, when we get to the city, worship ensues. Verse 37 As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Here, we have a picture, a witness of these disciples shouting of the first two servants from the parable, those who trust and know Jesus as he is. And their response as he enters the temple in power and humility is worship. See, the worship is informed not by getting caught up in the moment. This is not an emotionalism birthed out of some exciting experience. That's important, I think, for us to hear. Worship is not merely emotion. 
It's not singing a song that feels good. It, it, it's not just expressing some sort of thing that you're going through. It's about surrendering and thanksgiving to the reality of who God is. And the reality of God is most clearly perceived and seen for us today through his word. And so it's not surprising that the, that the disciples do not merely say whatever comes to their mind or whatever feeling comes to their heart about God in the moment, but rather they go to God's word. They go to Psalm 118. Hear it in context. Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Psalm 118 is a psalm which was sung in celebration of Passover. So it's perfectly fitting for the time. It was a cry or an announcement of victory. That's why they say, Hosanna or save us. Yet, as what we learn holistically from Hebrews is that these festal celebrations are merely a shadow of the victory and joy that are now dawning on this day as Jesus Christ walks toward Jerusalem. But also, as one writer put it, the horns of the altar will soon become the arms of the cross. The marking of this event in Psalm 118 is both better than we could have ever expected, yet it is fulfilled in a way that we could have never seen coming either. Power and humility. Jesus is blessed. Jesus comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus brings the peace of heaven. Jesus is deserving of glory in the highest. And all of this adulation, all of this veneration of Jesus is not simply made up in the mind's eye and imagination of the people. Notice all this praise is a faithful response to the mighty works of God. That's to say that that these are not simply ideas about Jesus, which some people believed and others might not. No, 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 no. These are the qualities of Jesus, which he has demonstrated in and through his life, in and through community, in public for all to see. This is about what he has done. This is right knowledge based on lived experience with Jesus. Church, what a gift that our God is not merely glorious in thought, but glorious in action, power, and humility. And notice, they did all this with a loud voice. Just saying, emotion is not wrong, but emotion is not enough. Our feelings and worship ought to be rightly informed by the reality of who God actually is and what he has actually done. Therefore, we pour over his word. We study his word. We memorize his word. We read his word regularly, daily, consistently, moment by moment when things surprise us, frustrate us, when it's frightful, when the walls seem to be closing and we go to his word. We study his works. We remind ourselves of who he is. We consider his nature because the more and the more precisely we know God and know his character, the more righteous our worship will be. Hear me, church. 
I want this for you. I want you to understand this. I want to believe this. I want to live this. The more you know him, the more you'll worship him. Or as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright so brilliantly notes, if your idea of God, if your idea of the salvation offered in Christ is vague or remote, your idea of worship will be fuzzy and ill-formed. The closer you get to the truth, the clearer becomes the beauty, and the more you will find worship welling up within you. He concludes, that's why theology and worship belong together. The one isn't just a head trip, and the other isn't just emotion. In everything, moment by moment, day by day, week in and week out, in quarantine and stay at home on the front lines of caring for the sick, in the middle of being sick, in the middle of fear and financial hardship, every single season is another opportunity. Every other situation is another chance to get clearer on the person of Jesus Christ that our worship and our life might increasingly be on point. See, this is why John tells us that those who worship him, those who worship God, worship him in spirit and in truth. As the disciples celebrate the incarnation, the power of humility, others come into focus in Luke's recollection. And they're not receptive to King Jesus. They are best seen as that third servant from the parable. They are close, they are connected, they are familiar with Jesus, but they don't trust him. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Luke has one of the kinder descriptions of the sect of the Pharisees. These guys get a pretty bad name, and I think rightly so, in the fuller picture of the Gospels. They dismissed Jesus. They sought to control with legalistic power, with power and no humility. But in Luke's account, on three separate occasions, the Pharisees invite Jesus over to their house for dinner in Luke 9, 11, and 14. They're close. They're connected. They are familiar, but they still don't trust him. You see, in telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples, they actually rebuke Jesus. Because what are the disciples doing? They're worshiping and praising the Lord for the gift of Jesus, the Messiah, the hope of God's people. Therefore, what the, what the Pharisees are saying, underlying is a presumption that Jesus is not the Messiah, that Jesus is not the hope of Israel. So, in asking Jesus to rebuke the disciples, they rebuke Jesus. They don't trust him. They don't know him. Similarly, I think we demonstrate a kind of distrust towards Jesus, or at least we are regularly tempted to. This passage, I think, reveals this tension we face daily. There are two, I think, at least two key ways that stem from this particular narrative of false ways of understanding Jesus around this idea of his power and his humility, because we have a tendency to select or see him in one way or the other. And in opportune times, we may select a vantage of Jesus over another. See, one view is of unbridled power, and the second is a presumption that humility is his weakness. So, in living in light 
of one and not the other, we actually rebuke God and his character. Let's consider them both separately. First, we may rebuke rebuke Jesus by supposing he's only power. How do we do this? I think we do this by living in fear of consequence or using consequence as our ultimate power. We may and likely do obey God and his word. And in fact, the reason, the motivation for obeying God with this view of Jesus is incredibly religious. We are fearful that to disappoint him will lead to pain and severe cost. And so we shape up in order to avoid discomfort, avoid consequence, avoid cost. We tuck it in, we button it up, and we live in a way that actually rejects the psalmist's description of God. We don't believe it. Psalm 103 says he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I confess regularly, as a parent, in fact, I I wield this kind of power, flexing on my kids with threats of consequence, not teaching them the speed of God's grace and mercy and the slowness of his anger. See, a lot of time anger manifests itself for many of us. I know this happens for me to try to take back control. And it reveals that I think that's what God is like, that he takes control through anger and consequence, and so do I. But a lack of grace and mercy reveals a view of God as just an angry authority. We reject him. We rebuke him. We can also rebuke Jesus by supposing he's only humble. And I think that we do this in a way of becoming very presumptuous about grace. See, it's, it's what the apostle Paul warned against when he wrote in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, living as if Jesus is only humble but not powerful is to live as if sin should never have consequence. This is a rebuke against his nature. And as a church family, I think we have to be very careful about this because this view persists when we don't forgive each other. As as if our sin has no cost, we just move on. We don't pursue reconciliation. We don't bring things into the light. We instead just go to another church or move on to other relationships. See, a lack of pursuing forgiveness reveals a view of God as if he is passive toward sin, that he is weak, that he is humble, that he is meek. He doesn't, isn't a powerful Lord who will call us to account. Jesus' response to this faith, faithless hesitation of the Pharisees is priceless. Look, look at it again. They tell him, hey, you got to tell your disciples to be quiet. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. You see, all creation knows the reality of who God is, of who the Son, Jesus Christ is. And so, if these were quiet, Jesus says, stones would shout. How could such glory, how could that even be possible? Is it just some sort of like illustration he's using? How, how, is, is his glory really that elemental that even creation would cry out? See, the only way that creation would cry out of the glory of God and of who he is in the person and work of Jesus Christ is if it is true. If the foundation of the world has been wielded together by the God who is full of power and full of humility, who is utter truth, 
truth and fullest beauty, who is complete authority and truest grace, who brings complete justice and genuine compassion. If that's who he really is, then if we are quiet, Jesus says the stones will scream at the top of their lungs. And so we see his power and his humility woven together in the fabric of his world. He is both power and humility, always and forever. Can I get an amen? See, when we have lived as if God is either power or humility, we have to realize, church, we have to realize that's sin. That is sinful. It's a wrong view of God, which has led to wrong worship and wrong living. So we need to repent of that. We need to confess that. We need to repent of that, not just move on. We, we don't know God if we think he is one or the other, or if we live as if he is one or the other. In essence, we don't trust him and we won't trust him because we don't know him. Therefore, we are, dis- we are deserving of dismissal like the third servant. And so we must look to the cross. We must look to the resurrection because it is precisely in this Passion Week and the work of Christ in it where we are given a most vivid display of the Son of God who is at one and the same time all authority and all grace. And when we see God for who he is, we will surrender and worship him rightly. After Jesus exchanged with the Pharisees, he looked at the city. Look at verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus rides into the city with this glorious, worshipful moment happening. He rides in displaying his power, his knowledge of all things, his control of the past, control of the future, his full understanding, this full power. And yet as he comes to the city, Jesus looks over the city and he weeps. He weeps and then he warns. And here we are given a picture of the enemies of the king from the parable. Now this may strike us as odd, if Easter week has become for us a trite reflection upon the newness of life. To be sure, one of the redemptive gifts we are facing in this unprecedented time for us as we face these restrictions is that we are unable to hang on to cherished expressions of Easter. We're forced to cherish only substance. And the substance of Easter begins with tears. Jesus is lamenting the brokenness. The Lord has been preparing us for this church. He's been preparing this in us for a long time. You see, we have not been in lamentations all this time to just put on happy faces at Easter. The lament of Jerusalem has unwittingly prepared us for the lament of Jesus. She had been unfaithful. We have been unfaithful. And the celebrated king, whose kingdom is not of this world, will judge things that have yet to be seen by our eyes. So there's a heaviness in Jesus' voice, which we've learned to discern through lament. 
through the book of Lamentations. Jesus comes as a king who judges, no question, but he also comes with tears, power, and humility. This authority and grace will become increasingly vivid through the week. Soon, Jesus will hang on a cross in full humiliation, bloody, beaten, and then dead. Three days later, though, he will rise in full authority, alive, victorious, and Lord. This is always the divine harmony within the Son of God. He is eternal, yet he enters into time. He is divine, yet became flesh. He is God, yet was dependent upon the Father in his word. He died, yet he rose. He entered Jerusalem as a king who judges, yet he came on a donkey with tears in his eyes. Author Andy Crouch, in his book on this duality of the Son of God, writes the two dimensions of Jesus' life, his vulnerability and dependency, and death on the one hand, his authority and his earthly ministry, and his heavenly exaltation on the other hand, can easily start to seem like linear alternatives, exaltation or humiliation, the empty tomb or the cross. But he explains, Crouch does, that we discover a blessed union with these two dimensions. He goes on to say, where we identify with vulnerability or aspire to it, Jesus is there. Where we identify with authority or aspire to it, Jesus is there. You see, in Jesus, we see this unthinkable coming together of two, what we perhaps have initially thought, two contradictory ideas of power and humility or authority and vulnerability in a single person, the man, God, Jesus Christ. This is what the city of God was witnessing before their very eyes, and they exclaimed, Hosanna, in the highest. In the final movement, Jesus enters the temple. Verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the, the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. This takes place in the court of the Gentiles, a space within the gates of the temple, but outside of the doors. It's filled with merchants selling pigeons and oxen and wine and oils and salt and all this sorts of things. And upon seeing this, Jesus quotes Isaiah 56. And there have been many suggestions about the importance of this particular event, but Luke seems most concerned with demonstrating that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to judge anyone and everyone who rejects the message of the gospel and him as Messiah. This is incredible. Mark and John give us a little bit more color to the story. And Luke, though, is really simple. Jesus is very clear. The temple is a place of worship and of prayer, not of buying and selling. But notice, look again at verse 45. He drives them out. The one who was just crying for them is now driving them out. Power and humility. Mark tells us that Jesus overturned tables. John tells us that he made a whip. Jesus comes with all authority. And so those who supposed themselves in charge of the temple were upset. The chief priest, the scribes, the principal men, they all started to make plans to kill him. Why? Because a Messiah who is both powerful and humble is not easily dismissed. In fact, you can't just enjoy him. You've got to deal with him. 
Tim Keller, again, famously has said that Jesus cannot be simply liked. You either kill him or you crown him. You either kill him or you crown him. C.S. Lewis has famously put it to us this way, responding to the presumption that Jesus was simply a great moral teacher, a familiarity which some thought was enough. He, he writes this, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He he finishes this way. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. God should not be feared, only you miss him. God should not be enjoyed, only you miss him. He should be feared and enjoyed because he has both power and humility. Familiarity is not faith. Trusting that God is all who he says that he is. That's faith. Faith is evidenced in the parable by submission to the will of the king. They did what he said. Faith is evidenced in Jerusalem by submission to the word of the king. They hung on every word. To submit to the king, here's the beautiful thing. You don't need to be familiar with him. You don't need to have all kinds of facts memorized and information about him. You don't need to have all of the details. You just need to trust him. You just need to surrender. And yet, when you surrender, when you trust him, you become more and more familiar with who he is, more and more knowledge, more and more understanding that you can submit and worship him rightly. See, Palm Sunday is a Sunday which has been celebrated by the church for generations. Jesus on a donkey entering in the to the gates of the great city of God, Jerusalem. In doing so, he paves a new way for us to see and know God. See, if you think God's some wrathful judge who's just waiting for you to slip up and discipline you, Palm Sunday will unearth your false familiarities. If you know him to be a passive force with little authority over the real world, Palm Sunday will dispel those misguided considerations too. You may be familiar with a God that has some idea of one or the other of these things. Perhaps you have some thought of God, but is your knowledge accurate? Is your understanding fueled by faith? And do you ultimately trust him? See, that's what the parable is all about. Jesus alone is deserving of your full trust. And one day he will return to settle all doubts. Heavenly Father, help us in this. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust that ultimately you are a God of great power, a God of infinite humility of where we have seen this displayed in Jesus Christ as he enters the city on the way to his own death for our sake. And so God, convict us in this. Shape us in this. Grow us in this, we pray that we might make much of Jesus this week in our lament, in our angst, in our weariness, 
as we stay at home, as we are on the front lines of care, as we're fearful of financial hardship, as we battle sickness and disease in our world, as we cry out, God, help us. We thank you that you are the the God who doesn't just have the ability to do something about it. You are the God who sees us and has done something about it. So help us to trust you in this, we pray that it might be for our good and your glory, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. His church agreed and said, amen.